Episode 31, Silly Goose Gang podcast, continuing our unofficial Shark Week. Um, and we're joined tonight by Jeremiah Sullivan from Shark Armour, all the way from San Diego. So, uh, Jeremiah, thank you very much for joining us this evening, or this afternoon in your case. It, it is. It's a great pleasure to be here, gents. Yeah, it's, uh, I have to say, Jeremiah, right from the get-go, this is, this is a wonderful beard and, uh, and hair combo <laughs> you have going on. You're, you're very much the, 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 the surfer. Um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fine look you have. You know, the, the, the beard comes and goes through the years. Uh, oh, God, since I was young and running around remote parts of the world, I sometimes would be at sea for, for months or a half a year. And and I started growing beards back then, and then I didn't wear them for many years because of a lot of the television that I was doing, trying to maintain some consistency. But uh, I figure at this stage of the game, hell, man, I can do whatever the hell I want, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> yes, you, yes, you can. Yes, you can. That right, definitely earned that right. So it's um, looking looking through some some notes today, Jeremiah. It looks like um, you know sharks have been a, a lifelong obsession for you. Well, they you know I, I grew up in the tropics. I don't know that they're an obsession, but they were a constant companion for the most part. Um, uh, having grown up in the tropics and spent a lot of my life roaming around various parts of the of the of the of the of the, of the open water, you know, the open sea, and. Uh, I was fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time there. And of course, particularly in my lifetime over the past, well, I'm 66 now. So, um, you know, for 50 years, I'm out running around. And if you go by that, that, that far, if you go back that far, you'll, we had a lot more sharks around. Uh, so sadly, uh, during my lifetime, these 50 plus years in the sea, I've seen such a degradation and a loss of these critical members of the marine ecosystem that it's a, it's a real tragedy, you know, that, uh, that uh, more people aren't, you know, tuned in uh, to more accurate, relevant, and uh, informed information about sharks and fishing and all that. Because as you as you know, you, you know we have the commercial fishing fleets all over the planet. You guys have yours. Everybody has theirs. Uh, and uh, on occasion, you know, the fishing lobby tends to uh, tends to hold sway over the conservation people and. You start de- destroying, you know, your sustainable yields from your own domestic populations of any species of food, food fish, then you're doing nothing but shooting yourself in the foot. And uh, mm-hmm. that's happened at an accelerated rate worldwide now. Oh, gosh, primarily over the past 20, 25, 30 years, which is terribly sad to see. But fortunately, there's still quite a few out. A lot of people are getting tuned in, uh, uh, so to speak, in the conservation value of animals like this. And what started out with me is just a few people that were, you know, interested in sharks and shark behavior and the kind of thing that I was doing has now become a global movement. And you've got about a billion dollar a year shark diving industry that's been developed out of the, uh, the success and the safety of the access uh, to swimming in the open water with sharks like this by using my suits, you know, the shark suits that I've been building for the last 40 some odd years. It's been a great adventure. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be a great adventure. When you when you when you talk about the you know uh, like the fish, um, you know the 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 decline in the population, is this a a a, a fishing thing or is this a, a a climate thing primarily? Well, I think that the I think initially on the front end, it's the it's the fishing thing, and uh, we've got a lot of problems uh, right now 
uh, with uh, uh, shark finning. You, you you probably heard of this, mm -hmm. yeah, this, yeah. this this behavior. Unfortunately, it's from some of the you know some of the uh, uh, countries of, out in the Pacific, uh, China, for instance. Some of the other Asian countries still do this. Unfortunately, because what they're doing is they're capturing these vital vital members. It's like taking a pillar out from under a, a you know a, a, a you know a, a, a tall building and expecting everything to be fine. You just can't do that and expect not to have problems as a result. So. They're destroying these animals, just cutting their fins off, throwing the animals back in the sea to die a miserable death, sink to the bottom or otherwise. And I find that stunningly unconscionable. But then again, our species, uh, our version of, of, uh, of uh, animals in the ecosystem, uh, being humans, uh, have been, uh, have been uh, perhaps less generous you know, with that kind of thinking. And uh, the sooner we get there, the better off we'll all be. Yeah, I think yeah. I think finning's one of those practices where you know taking everything aside, you know, farming, fishing, it just seems so wasteful because they are literally just they're not using any other part of the animal. At least if you know if they were using the whole animal, okay, they're still taking them out, but at least you know there's they literally just cut the fins off and as you oh, say, yeah. just dump the rest. It's it's such a wasteful practice. Yeah, there well, there's and that's the one. Those are the ones that are targeting the sharks. And for instance, you, you know about the Galapagos Islands, spectacular place. I spent a lot of time there in the 80s or 70s or 80s, uh, might have been the 70s. This was way early. This is before it became its uh, Ecuador took over as a national park and all that sort of business. And it's an extraordinary natural history environment, as you know. And now areas like that are being targeted heavily by these industrial scale fishing operations from primarily China that are going into, and I'm not bagging on China, I'm just saying, God, man, you have got to get a grip on this because it's unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And the way they'll, you know, some people will eat every freaking living thing, you know, that they can catch. Uh, that's not necessarily, uh, you know, a, an, an, an appropriate way to go forward. I mean, this is 2020. And, yeah, sure. uh, you know, it's time to start thinking differently on this little blue marble because, we're filling it up and we're taking away everything that sustains our ability to exist here. So it's kind of a yeah. sort of a fool's errand, if you will. But um, yeah, the, 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 the exploitation aspect of it is brutal. So you've got those that are targeting just the sharks with long lines and all this sort of thing. And around the Galapagos Islands, uh, there are, oh gosh, were there something like a hundred commercial boats that were starting to move in again, as they have been for years now, come in and, and they were actually going into the national park waters and, uh, and just raping the, you know, the marine, marine life there. Well, then the Galapagos will get wind of that, the, 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 the government there, and they'll say, no, no, out of our territorial waters. So the next plan is for those same fishing industries and these gigantic uh, industrial boats to put a giant ring all the way around those islands so that all of those migratory routes that every year or seasonally these animals move into and out of that part of the ocean they're catching them there instead of driving all the way into the islands to pull them out so it's a staggeringly staggeringly painful uh and uh, destructive uh thing to to see going on and and uh you know hopefully hopefully uh people will wake up before it's too late do you, do you have a sorry ali do you have a like a number in terms of the the decline of sharks in terms of like percentages, you know, is it, you know, 60% of what it was 
in oh, yeah. the 70s or you know what what kind of numbers are you talking about jeremiah yeah 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 well i can tell you from my personal observations here in the 80s in san diego when i was at scripps uh, institution oceanography when i was studying shark behavior and all that the human shark interaction is sort of my specialty and uh, how to avoid the you know having bad interactions that way and uh, uh, back when i was in school there you could literally see finning across the top of the surface on a glassy day a couple of hundred shark fins just just within you know within you know 500 yards of shore now you see nothing where we used to have a shark diving uh, capability here in san diego people would go out and we'd chum them up and you'd be able to see them and swim with them now it's extremely difficult to find them at all so in my direct experience, I've seen a massive degradation in the volume of, uh, of species. And I'm not just talking San Diego, but globally, unless they're being heavily, heavily protected uh, and, and responsibly so. So, you, so it, the, 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 the numbers on this are that 90, 90% of the large fish are already gone from the sea. We've killed them. We've wiped them fricking out. 90% of the big fish. Every bluefin tuna that was caught and monitored here in the Pacific after Fukushima is radioactive. They pick up the radioisotopes on every fricking fish that's caught out here in the Pacific. And if you look at a satellite image that uh, covers all of this stuff, you can see how the plume traveled from you know, down off Japan and, and with the currents, the annual encyclical currents that move around, it spreads that kind of toxicity everywhere. So this is where a lot of these environmental pressures and strains that, that uh, you had mentioned a moment ago come in and they give you the, the second barrel. You know, it's like two smoking barrels, man. You're getting, you got one up front from the guys that are killing them unnecessarily for, for um, you know, fantasy, you know, a, 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 a health supplement of some kind. And then you've got the, the rest of them that are, that are coming in and destroying them from all these other environmental issues, like toxicity, like the global warming and all this sort of thing. The critical thing to understand about global warming isn't that it's just getting warmer and it's a little inconvenient, we sweat a little bit more. The problem is that once that starts happening, it's like a domino effect. And every single little aspect segment of an ecosystem your environment, everything around you, from the bugs to the birds and the bees and everything else is affected one way or another. If you think about the, if you think about the ocean, let's focus on that for a second, as, as a finely tuned uh, machine, like a Ferrari, mm. it works best when it's properly maintained and, 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 and safeguarded. You don't just give it to a kid and say, go have fun. You've got to take care of things if you expect them to, to be functional in the same manner. And, uh, you know, while there's been a significant trend toward conservation and all those things, it's never going to be enough at the rate that we are destroying and exploiting things unnecessarily, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually just seen this morning, just doubling back a little bit, Jeremiah, on the um, the Chinese factory ships in Galapagos. Uh, Andy Torbett, Chris, you know, who's mm, previously yeah. been on the podcast, shared a picture and it yeah. was from a fisherman that was working on behalf of the Galapagos. Um, and he'd been out, and it was literally the horizon. It looked like there was a city with the amount of lights strung across the entire width of the horizon, you know, as far as someone could see with a camera. 
and it was just it looked like a cityscape with the amount of lights in the middle of nowhere yeah. and it was it's all ships it's just ships with massive nets or long lines as you say just They're all fishing Hammering it, all fishing, hammering it, hammering it. Hammering them. And these, these long lines are indiscriminate. So they're not just killing the sharks that die a miserable death. They're killing anything that happens to swim by and pick up that hook. So they're yeah. killing a lot of species, these shark fishermen, that don't want that species. So again, it goes over the side as bycatch or something else. They're, frankly, the Chinese are probably taking that protein and consuming it in some way or another because they tend to leave little little aside from the shark's torsos you know most most uh, food things they'll they'll still consume but yeah it's a it's it's just stunning how this happens i first became aware of the perils of these kinds of factory ships and things of that nature that kind of industrial fishing and remember these are exploitive markets these these are it's mm -hmm. like the oil industry oil and gas and some of these other things timber all they do is take from nature for the most part and exploit things that were here and, and belong, frankly, to everyone. And by doing that, they're not doing and replacing a damn thing. They're just taking it out like gold or silver or something else, walking away and leaving their mess behind, as though out of sight, out of mind. We did that over there. It's got nothing to do with us. It's not a problem here. We're just going to make something pretty out of the metal we took out of their ground and destroyed their land. You know, it's not unlike what they did to the indigenous Americans here, you know, when they came in and took our land in this country. Yeah. I, this is, I wonder um, if that out of sight, out of mind thing plays an element with the fishing because people don't see the fish until they're on a fishmonger's counter or in the supermarket. So yep. you don't really, as you, as Chris was saying, you know, how, how low has it gone down because you don't see it. We're used to seeing on the telly or on, or on you know, nature documentaries, yeah, well, you know, the plains of Serengeti or you know, the lions chasing the gazelles, and there's a, whereas you, you don't really see the fact, does that make sense? We're, it, it almost yeah. is outside of mind, we don't really worry about it. Yeah. yeah. The people what, I, what I was going to say, Jeremiah, was just, um, this is why it's really important to talk to specialists in sort of um, every field, because you get on the, you know, the six o'clock news, maybe a 30 second snippet, about you know sharks oh sharks are they're de declining in population and uh, anyway on sport and then you don't that's it so without speaking to guys like you you know we would never know this stuff at, at all because it's it's not it's not out there you know for general con uh, consumption you know you can you can find this kind of information you're correct that it's not it's not uh, presented in in the mass media in that way but oh please please put some links up and uh, things of that nature that encourage people to take a look. And you can find it all online now and, uh, yeah. and through the various uh, conservation orga organizations that are out there working uh, so that people can get a sense of that. If you were on a boat that was doing this kind of fishing, you would see things like people pulling these sharks up over the side off these long lines that can go for miles. They'd have turtles. They'd have all kinds of non targeted species, etc. If they're not targeted, they're over the side. If it's sharks, they cut the fins off, they throw them over the side. In order to throw them over the side, they might take a stick with a nail in it and hammer them in the head with it and then drag them over so it's easier for them to throw them out the scupper, right? Well, there's an enormous amount of this kind of utter madness. And there are there are people that, that uh, clandestinely record this kind of thing. Uh, in, in Asia, you know, and particularly in the South, uh, what they're calling the South China Sea now, 
all of those southern Asian countries, you know, the Chinese are coming in there and playing hell uh, on things. They're they're moving into the uh, the islands that are claimed by Vietnam and, and Malaysia and a lot of these other places, and they're claiming them for themselves to make the military right, and or exploiting all of the marine resources that are edible out of them beforehand, like the Tridacna clams, the giant clams. They're going in and throwing in explosives and blowing things up just to pull these clams out, and they're destroying the, the yeah. sustainable functionality of these large marine areas that sustain several countries. Doesn't matter. This is our, our mind, 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 mind. You know, this seems to be the mentality, you know, that, that's going on there. But uh, there's also a number of cases that I've been hearing about where if a if the, if the Chinese or, or I keep to hate, I hate to use the term Chinese all the time, but unfortunately they are one of the, you know, if not the largest. So, so you have these, uh, you have these, uh, these countries when these, when these commercial fishing industries come in, maybe they make a, some kind of a deal that, you know, somebody gets a handful of cash and they let them exploit their, their waters for a while. Unfortunately, because they're so good at doing what they're doing, they're going to Africa and various places, giving some dictator some money. He comes in and removes the viability of the fish populations that have sustained that country and its people since the beginning of time. And now they're being decimated so that soon there'll be even more massive uh, uh, crises of, of uh, available protein to indigenous cultures anywhere that are attached to the sea and tend to survive off of it. But there are, there are I know, reports of observers which are placed on these boats by the countries in the areas that they're trying to, that these guys want to come in and fish. And these guys are getting, they're disappearing. One or two or three, something happened. Where'd he go? I don't know. Lately, he fell off. Something happened. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so the police guys, supposed to be keeping an eye on things, are persona non grata. Uh, they're uh, disposed of and, you know, they're catching these pirate fishing boats all over the place, not just the Galapagos, but freaking everywhere. It's nightmare. I know um, I had watched, uh, ironically, it was um, uh, the Grand Tour. It was, a, a, you know, a car show, which was previously, you know, the guys from Top Gear in the UK, Jeremy Clarkson, yeah. this, they had a new show, and, and they had done a, a, a show when they were in uh, Cambodia, into Vietnam, and they were using boats. Uh, and when they were going down the Mekong Delta, they were saying, you know, uh, like 60 million people require the Mekong Delta for fish. And if they mess that up, it's worse than like nuclear war to, to those people. That's how many people depend on that for for their life. So, um, you know, the, 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 I think, again, China had been damming certain parts of the river that come off it and it was lower, you know, it was really messing it up. And they were, they were trying to make the point of, you know, we cannot mess this up because for the, the locals, Cambodians and the, the Vietnamese, it's so critical for their survival, you know, and they, they've got their ways to, 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 to you know, to fish it um, sustainably um, and, and kind of China coming in and damming it and, and kind of really messing it up. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a matter of uh, there, there are those that create and share and those that take and destroy. And yeah, that's yeah. what seems to be going on, particularly in our country right now. You've got a, we got a cultural battle going on here, not just between political perspectives, but people that actually understand that if we're going to continue to live on this planet, you can't just incinerate it for a quick buck. A quick buck means jack nothing. You can't eat money. 
these are the words of, uh, of of some of our great indigenous leaders here. You know that when the when the when you know when the white man realizes uh, that he's destroyed everything uh, and he, he sees only a pile of money there, you know he can't eat that money. It just doesn't work. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's a sad situation, but you know, hope spring uh, springs uh, eternal. That that enough people globally will get wind of this. You know, it's like your big fish in the Mediterranean. You know, you guys uh, over in uh, off of Europe, you know, you lost all your, almost all your big, big tuna, your giant tuna. They're expected they gets wiped out. People go to the Mediterranean, they go, where's all the fish, man? You don't see a lot over there because of all the exploitation. You got to yeah. find a way to survive. Yeah, we've had it since my, my dad was in the Royal Navy for 22 years. Um, and a large portion of his career, he was with the fishery protection fleet because of the, the cod and the herring that was getting taken at the time by the Icelandic fleet and the Spanish fleets were coming in with the start of the big factory boats and, and we had the smaller British trawlers that just could not compete um, and, and the Navy, the Royal Navy actually created the fishery protection fleet for that very reason to put a, a military presence out to protect the fishing grounds and to try and maintain the cod stocks up in the Greenland, Iceland, UK gap up the, you know, the far north end towards the the Arctic Ocean almost, mm -hmm. um, because otherwise it would have been, and, and, and at one point it was almost a fighting war between Britain and Iceland over fish, which is, mm -hmm. it sounds crazy, but as you say, so many people rely on it for not just food, but for income and everything else, that yeah. it's, it's that continual battle, isn't it, between sustainability, but a, a viable industry, whilst also not destroying, you know, the planet. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's well, a that, delicate balance. Yeah, that and the, and the, and, and the, the human condition of, of, of believing that you must maintain ancient cultural this or that. Oh, we used to hunt whales for, you know, that was, I remember my granddad did it. I want to do it too. Bullshit. You know, the, the, what, what's happening up in the up in, uh, Iceland, the Azores and all, you know, some of these other spots in the Faroe Islands. Island, yeah. Spent a lot of time in the Antarctic, and man, the wildlife that we could see down there. This is before it became a big tourist destination, and uh, and of course, then the Chinese are coming in, and and or not the Chinese, but the Japanese in this case, coming in and wanting to harvest all these whales and killing the dolphins. Man, over in Taiji and these places, it's like guys, there's no room for this kind of cultural nonsense in a planet that is shrinking before your very eyes. You know, it's important to to change, to be able to adapt. This is Darwin's big big deal, right? You either adapt or you die. And if you can't change ahead of the curve, you're gonna be scrambling, you know, dog paddling for survivability. And, and unfortunately, industries, certainly in my country, here in the United States, they tend to want to exploit every last cent that could come out of anything that somebody invested in, like, uh, like oil, you know, the old uh, fossil fuels and all that sort of thing, as opposed to shifting toward sustainable in, uh, energy, which is the only survivability, you know, um, uh, energy source that, that we're going to have here, as far as I'm concerned, at least one that's mm -hmm. sustainable. And uh, no, it's a it's a freaking hot mess. You know, people tend to cling to what happened before, as opposed to being innovative, being adaptive, you know. Uh, being being a good evolutionary partner on this on this planet, along with the rest of the critters. Yeah, I know. Um, you mentioned the, the, the Faroe Islands in there. Um, I, I know they're real bad for for um, shark fin soup. Real bad. Um, there's, there's always pictures. I think uh, maybe later on in the, towards the year, it's like you know the season where they do it and they, they you know they, they just 
cut the fins off and yeah, they've just, it's actually this week, they've just done it this is week, it this or week? last is week, this week? Yeah. Yeah, they, they drive yeah. all the porpoises, sharks, dolphins, and, and it just, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, Jeremiah, but they chased them into what at the time used to be a natural harbour, over time has been built into a, a full functioning harbour, and just literally clubbed them, and as you say, it's, they do it under that culture slash tradition slash whatever mm. phrase you want to put aside that makes it seem politically correct, but and again, they're not even using it for food, for oil, for fuel. They're they're just, as far as I can see, and everything I've read, are just just slaughtering them because it's the tradition on the the midsummer festival at the end of the midsummer festival. It's stunning to me. I don't know how how any living thing can grow up with such a simple and shallow <clears throat> vision and not see see more of what's what's going on. But you know, I think that conservation, uh, frankly, is a luxury. It's a luxury mm-hmm. for countries and people that that uh, aren't first preoccupied with survival. And in many places, people are preoccupied with survival. They're the ones that get hammered the hardest and first. <clears throat> when when, when uh, the wealthier countries with greater capabilities exploit what little resources they have for, for greedy purposes, uh, rather than uh, uh, trying to you know, support uh, a more balanced and healthy you know uh you know uh, you know approach but that whole yeah that whole pharaoh's you know murder murder scene there is just brutal and painful to see mm. uh, the up in the up, up in the northern pacific you know we have the indigenous cultures up there that still claim culturally that they should be able to take one or two whales or something like this you know per year per 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 tent, per little uh, village or something like that and now that's sustainable that's that's all those other resources that you use all, every bit of that that material and that and that meat. Other places, like in the fair, they not you know maybe they might be eating some of that stuff, but it's not. It's just, there's no need or reason to do that. In the case of sharks, sharks have very high mercury levels in their bodies. Normally, the larger fish, particularly the pelagic ones that swim around, you know, big tuna and all that sort of thing, they swim around and they eat up all the smaller stuff in their in their in their world, the niche that they live in, and. Uh, uh, as a result, they're compounding the amount of some of these toxic materials that exist in their in their meat. And people just don't seem to get it that sharks are flat out, at least all the ones I've heard about being tested, are way over the threshold of what you're supposed to consume at any time. They're they're massively beyond this is you know the, the healthy levels of, of mercury exposure that that uh, human should have. Yet they still do it. They still eat all, they, you know, some of them eat the meat, some of them turn into fish and chips. The smooth hound, it's a smaller, one of the smaller, non-dangerous species of sharks. Yeah. They, they capture them in massive, massive numbers with bottom trawlers and all this kind of stuff and massively destructive. Uh, and uh, sell it as some other kind of fish. You're eating mercury. You're eating yeah. mercury. You know, you used to be able to get it, and I don't know if you still can, but they used to call it in Britain and certainly in up on the west coast of Scotland, they used to call it rock salmon because they didn't want to use dogfish or smooth, uh, yeah. smooth shark or whatever species yeah. it was. So they would yeah. call it rock salmon because yeah. it was found on the rocks. And obviously, everyone in Scotland, you know, Scotland's famous for salmon and fly fishing and you know, the, the, the salmon leaping out the water. So, rock salmon, it doesn't sound as bad as dogfish or smooth shark, <laughs> you know, smooth started chips. No they thanks. That. Well, that sounds delicious. Thank you very much. They do it around the world, you know. And and again, sadly, it's more about 
at least the smaller countries, the, the, the less fortunate ones that don't have all these other diverse sources of income and sustenance and, 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 and nutrition, uh, you know, they really, it, it really is a, 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 it's a luxury to be able to say, no, no, we don't want to destroy all that. We want to protect that for our kids and their kids and their kids. Well, if you're sitting there and you got a village of a dozen people and there's absolutely nothing to eat but what's in that water out there and there's nothing else nearby, that's, that is your life. So we can't be beating them. You know, we don't want to beat on guys that are actually living the way they always have. But you definitely do not want an increased level of exploitation. Say these fishermen or these uh, industrial people come in and encourage them to kill more and more and more so that they can sell it to these guys for a penny. And then they're selling it for 100 bucks over here. So all of that wealth and money continues to evade the people that that maintain, protect, and have nurtured that, uh, that, uh, that fishery. And now, again, it's being exploited as badly as the industrial ships coming in. This, um, th this sort of reminds me, um, you know, being at uh, school and learning about, you know, when the Europeans came to Northern America and, you know, the natives would, when they killed a buffalo, they would use every single part of the animal, whereas the Europeans would come, kill them, take the hide off and make clothes and, uh, and, and uh, a blanket and then leave the, leave the animal to rot. Um, it's just, you know, completely wasteful and, um, I mean, dumb, <laughs> essentially. You know, it's just so stupid. Well, when I was young, we used to spend some time in Africa and uh, sort of like the tail end of the colonial period, I guess you could say, and, you know, back in the 60s and on and uh, the late 60s. And it was the same then, you know, if there, if any game that was taken, everything was consumed, everything. Mm. Uh, there was a difference. There used to be hunters. Now there are killers. In my view, yeah. there's no, no need, no reason, no excuse uh, to be out, you know, trophy hunting and all that sort of nonsense, you know, killing these beautiful creatures, you know. We're running out of animals. I mean, you see it every day. We, we lose more and more species. So why, why, why would anybody, you know, find that attractive or interesting? Not that I don't appreciate the primitive life. I've lived that way a lot, but I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't see any need for people to behave in manners that uh, uh, that uh, don't serve the well-being of both humanitarian and environmental causes. Simple as that. Thankfully, um, thankfully, there's there's people like you in, in every every field uh, regarding you know animals and the planet. So uh, we need more. We need more Jeremiah's out there, uh, all across the world, to, to, to look after all these things. It's the young, it's the young ones that blow my mind. You know, there's so many fantastic young conservation people now, and and uh, you know, educators. They're absolutely phenomenal and uh, brilliant, and so much more energetic than an old carcass like I like I am at this stage of the game. But uh, you know, I, I love to engage with them, and I love to see the momentum, and I'm delighted that there are so many powerful magnificent young kids that are uh, that are picking up the banner and they're fearless fearless of anybody or anything so uh, i think i think we have a chance if we can just get the older the older uh, fools out of the way and and uh, and let the young folks step up and do what they do best and that's to that's to be good yeah Talking about the, you know, talking about your old carcass there, which definitely is the case. You do, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast. You look tremendous for. Did you say sixty six? Sixty six, yeah. Uh, you're looking tremendous you look, for sixty six. Um, you, you, you look, you, you look like the, uh, you know, the, the lost Beach Boy, Jeremiah. That's what you look like. You look like you might be a, you know, 
Dennis, Dennis, <laughs> you know, Dennis's uh, long lost cousin or something. That's what you, you know, you look like you could have been in the Beach Boys. That was my, <laughs> that, I, I, that was my life. That was my music. <laughs> yeah, well, it was funny because I grew up um, out there running around when, in the ocean. That was my thing. <laughs> when when uh, when we grew up, uh, when we were kids, my mum and dad had an old Volkswagen, and uh, my dad was a, a massive Beach Boys fan. So I grew up listening to the Beach Boys. So. Um, I suppose any any young people listening will not know what the Beach Boys are, but they are <laughs> a, a, a fantastic band. So uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that period of time, you know, was just so magical. You know, surf and the whole thing. You know, the golden summers. You know, yeah. spectacular. Yeah. I, 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 I surfed in Scotland, um, so a little <laughs> bit different to the surf that you would have had in the tropics in the west coast of America. We were very much dry suits. <laughs> because of the, the the water temperature for most of the year. Look, man, I, I've always been impressed when the young guys, you know, because I used to spend time in Antarctica in those places, and I always had a, had a surfboard on the chips with me. In the polar regions, I did not have an interest in trying to find a wave to ride, but uh, I, I use them in the tropics. However, I've been blown away to see how a lot of you guys that live up in those northern climates, Ireland and elsewhere, are loading up with all that rubber jumping in the water and having a blast, man. I'm just yeah. like, holy crap, man. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's um, a documentary on Netflix, Jeremiah. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Under an Arctic Sky. And it's some, uh, some American guys, they have Icelandic friends, and there's some real remote part of northern Nor uh, Iceland, sorry, um, which is really not easy to get to. Um they eventually get to, to, to ride these waves that apparently are incredible. I mean, they eventually find it, you know, it's a, a, a whole story, and they get there, and they're, they're riding these waves under the northern lights, and it's amazing. You watch it, and you just go, fuck, I want to be like that. I want to be that cool. It's just I think so I saw cool. a clip of that. Yeah, I think yeah, I might have seen a clip absolutely, of that with the, with the light up there. amazing. It just looks so cool. Um, it's, uh, you know, I've, I've said to Ali recently, I would like to learn to surf, but, uh, you know, as you get older, it's... Uh, Time, time is time is the the issue. Uh, but yeah, that's that's something that's uh, on my list of things to learn is to surf. It just looks such, like such a nice like freedom and um, you know being out there. It's such a cool thing to do. I think so. Um, and yeah. you, you can. Uh, I mean, there's no age limit. You know, as long as you keep your parts, you know, functional, then uh, then you're good to go. You know, my I've got a my right shoulder's giving me a lot of trouble these days, so I'm trying to get that fixed. And once that's done, then I expect I should be. Should be back uh, back in the game. I'm a longboarder now. I don't play around with the shawl boards anymore. I've always, I always had a longboard. Even when I was 18, I had a nine foot two red and white candy stripe Malibu with a one and a half inch mahogany noseboard. There you go. That's right. That's the best <laughs> fun, man. That Proper longboard. Yeah, because yeah, it worked. It worked well for on the east coast of Scotland. Obviously, we don't have like a mass amount of reef breaks. It tended to be sandbar breaks. So they had those. Not massively high, but long waves that worked beautifully with a longboard, you know, two or three foot swell, but the, the wave would roll for 30, 40, 50 seconds. And yeah. you could just sit up, you know, on your longboard and just just run with it. It was brilliant. Yeah, then nowadays the kids are sh they're shredders, you know what I mean? They're all very aggressive and all kind of hopped up. And, you know, my, my style and early surfing style was long waves. It's like skiing on long skis instead of the short yeah, yeah. skis. And it's just a long, beautiful, stylish, you know, uh, fun, fun lifestyle, and, uh, and and you know, and a great way to grow up, for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, 
Right. Sorry, Alice. I was just going to say to Jeremiah, one of the things, and I've, I realised this after I started following you on Instagram, and I feel like, oh, you're an apology, because I've been, a, a, like most kids growing up, become a fan of sharks at a very young age. And I remember seeing a documentary, <clears throat> and I think it must have been the late 80s, maybe early 90s, and it was Ron and Valerie Taylor. Mm-hmm. In your shark suit, and I have up until literally probably eighteen months or so ago, I always thought it was Ron and Valerie Taylor that had created it, because it was always <laughs> everything was so same. So I apologise for thinking nearly my entire life that the 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 shark suit, the shark armor, the the galvanic steel suit was actually your invention. Well, it you know Ron and Val were friends of mine. We were we were uh, partnered up in the very beginning of the shark shoots. Ron Val and I were, were, were close friends. We traveled around different parts of the world and doing diving and doing that sort of thing. And and I uh, actually lived with them in Sydney for a year at one point back in about 1980-ish. And uh, as a young marine biologist, they were mentors of mine, Ron and Val. And uh, so I was discussing my my intentions and plans and so on with them uh, through, through the years back then. And uh, they believed in what I was talking about. And Ron had actually said at one point, yeah, I like that idea. You know, I, I actually, I thought about something like that myself about 13 years ago uh, when he saw Oyster Shucker's glove, because I, I had come across some science that suggested sharks would not like the galvanic currents created by metal and seawater. So I'm thinking about, okay, how can I make something that's wearable, that's made out of metal? I couldn't find any material at that point, aside from the old mail that you could find in museums, which was extremely heavy had large uh, interior diameter rings, so it wouldn't help with shark's teeth. It would probably stop the problem, but it wasn't optimized, you know, for what it was that I needed. And and uh, so I started literally working with old armor parts in the beginning. And at dinner with Ron and Val one night, I, I uh, uh, brought this thing up, and Ron says, I know where you can get some something like that, where you can get some material. And that's when he said, I, some, some years ago, I saw this this glove, and, you know, perhaps that would be strong enough. So then I started working on that kind of material. I sourced it out, uh, ended up uh, being able to encourage the people that were making it for me at the time, the raw material, to increase the durability and strength of the material that they had while shrinking the interior diameter to pretend, uh, prevent the, the teeth tips from the, from the lower jaw from getting through. Because the bottom jaw teeth on sharks are generally narrow and spiky on most species. The top teeth are usually the more serrated and triangular ones, so that they have the cutting power. So these hook in, and then then it comes down, and they take off, take off chunks. Well, I ended up uh, accomplishing that. Ron and Val were only involved, I think, you know, in a couple of those early discussions, and we did a few shots, a uh, little bit of film work. But um, uh, interestingly, when uh, when all that was going down, I had, uh, uh, you know, had many inquiries to want to do TV programs and all that, but I had made a deal with Ron and Val uh, for their support and, and help in me making the first suit or two that that uh, they would have the chance to make the first film about the suit's development. Okay. Well, so I'm sitting here, sitting on my hands with all these people wanting to come and do TV programs with me, and I'm saying, no, 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 I can't do that. I've got to, you know, as soon as my friends get done with theirs, then I'll be happy to do that with you, uh, but um, not until then. And they're all trying to get me to burn my friends, and oh, they'll never know. But I'm like, <laughs> no, you don't. I'm not that kind of person. And uh, in the end, it was taking years for that little film project that Ronabel wanted to do to finish. 
And uh, I finally, on a on a one of the television programs that we were working on, uh, I pinned uh, pinned them down and said, "Look, I need a date when I can start to be I can free myself up and start, you know, pulling my business together here." And uh, once that time came, boom! I was you know within days I was off doing television programs. The problem was during that three year period, they were promoting. Like the suits and so on, and kind of trying to make that connection in a way that a lot of people were confused by that. But uh, they were having uh, a great beginning of it, and uh, and uh, you know, rightly so. They're they're fabulous people. Ron's gone now, but Val's still alive, and she's still diving. Spectacular, spectacular woman. That's pretty cool. It's really cool when you. you uh, it's you it's been a while. Right? It's been it's been over forty years now that I've been building those suits, and it's yeah. not just the not just the old chainmail, but. Um, you know, and the, the old steel mesh is, is this kind of stuff here. It's, the, it's, it's like what you would imagine, you know, the, yeah. the, uh, the, 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 uh, the old armor to be, but finer. It's more like a lingerie version of what, uh, of what the guys <laughs> dark ages were wearing. Yeah. And, you know, I started, started with stainless and uh, started doing some other things out of titanium for some special clients that uh, the military and so on who have uh, uh, restrictions for having magnetic objects around them. Mm. Etc. Uh, then I had uh, inquiries from a lot of my friends in the special operations side, the military, the DOD, and the law enforcement, and so on, that um, were asking me in the beginning of the wars in the Middle East uh, that were going on, at least that we were participating in about what's been 30 years now or so, 20, 30 years. Uh, these guys were all saying, hey, man, we're getting all chewed up over here. Uh, you know, you're extending survivability in lethal environments in your world. How about helping your friends out? And uh, because my entire experience in life has been out in remote parts of the world living you know a, a perilous existence to some extent uh there was a great uh, similarity there uh and they could see that and they they encouraged me to start working towards non-metallic materials that could be used to protect not just the divers and when, when i'm doing my bit but also people in other environments terrestrial wherever they happen to be and whatever they happen to be doing so that the evolution has been extremely interesting, and uh, at this stage of the game, we have literally reset the threshold for protective textiles and materials globally over the past, uh, you know, recent years, uh, and uh, that's been a, you know, the, the changes are coming. In the same way that the, the my suits, the shark suits uh, and shark armor has has changed the diving industry in its way. Um, these these other solutions, these advanced protective technologies I'm developing, are changing uh, the the face of personal protection in all kinds of environments out in the world. That's, that's cool. Um, so, do, do, has your suit, uh, the ideas and the suits themselves, have they have they changed as the science has improved the the, the, the raw materials? So, as you know, like you say, you know, you know. Titanium has become sort of available. Has that constantly been an evolution of the suit as, as things become more available? Stuff, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. No, I'm always uh, even back in back in 1980 when I was first starting to build these. I started the project in 1978 when I was a student. That's when I was studying all the sensory systems of sharks, and I stumbled on this uh, this uh, these papers that suggested that sharks did not like that galvanic current created by metal in seawater. Mm -hmm. That was the beginning. It turned out to be a you know somewhat inaccurate uh, assessment, but I had a two a two stage approach there. I had the theoretical opportunity that sharks would not want near metals these these galvanic 
currents and seawater, rusting metal or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but at the same time, I had a physical barrier. It turns out that the theory was useless because it varies depending on what species you're talking about. The smaller mm -hmm. species, like a dog, a smooth dogfish up in your neck of the woods, uh, some studies were done where they put little blindfolds on these sharks that were in a big tank. They couldn't see, but their sensory systems were all there. And sharks have, you know, three primary sensory systems and use a couple of others. You've got the electroreception. You've got, you know, hearing or sound vibration. You got vision. You got smell and taste. And the electroreception of sharks happens to be the most sensitive in the animal kingdom. Uh, as a result, uh, the same way if you put if you chewed on some foil, aluminum foil, it gets on your on your on your one of your chilling, you know, it's got that weird feeling. Well, things there must there's something going on there that affects them. And this thing called tonic immobility, which is basically a shark kind of going into a short circuit phase or stage, not difficult or painful or anything like that, but it's just it alters them. It's like us, you know, in some peculiar, peculiar state uh, that uh, uh, that the that is accentuated with the galvanic currents, right? So the galvanic currents assist in those in those tonic immobility behavior uh, uh, displays. However, uh, going back to that to that small shark, uh, to to make this story complete here, they they blindfold the shark, they introduce into the salt water there piece of wood. Shark stays where he is, nothing happens. Piece of uh, glass, nothing happens. A rusting wire, boom! The shark tries to swim away from the proximity of that wire. Ooh, he can't see it. He probably doesn't smell anything here, but his sensory system, his electroception, has picked this up. Anything that has a greater galvanic current than your own, because every living thing has, you know, an electrical field around it, mm. would be considered what? Predator. Mm. Can't see, but there's something bigger near you that you can't see, and you don't want to be around. You don't want to be food, so you escape, right? So there are all these layers of spectacularly uh, refined evolutionary survival techniques and tactics that literally every living thing has established uh, over since the beginning of time. Uh, and that, again, is going back to our earlier conversation is how and why it gets so complex, complicated and complex with the synergistic dramas that occur between each of these changes that we make in a perfect system. Nature's pretty damn good at what it does. It's better than anything anybody else has been able to come up with, right? Uh, yet we continue to think in our arrogance as, as, uh, as the vertical, you know, uh, primate, uh, that, uh, that we'd be better at that than anybody else. But example, that, uh, that small shark we were talking about, a small species would be intimidated by a galvanic current. As I learned through those many, many years of running these kinds of tests and studies, you go all the way up to the biggest species, the white shark. What is he going to be afraid of? Not much. Maybe anything with a galvanic current to a white shark could be considered prey. Ooh. That's probably good. So now I'm thinking, oh, geez, great. Now, I thought I've been building a suit that protects us from shark bites, and now I've got one that attracts shark bites. Well, that didn't really turn out to be the case either. But uh, there is some validity to, to that you know, to that, to that equation. And uh, that's part of the reason that I like shifting to other materials like titanium, because mm -hmm. they give off the same electric signature that, uh, that, the, that the steel does in water. And of course, why I've been shifting for, for other industry sectors 
uh, toward non-metallic solutions and so on. Just for a little fun, the, uh, so you see, you see the stainless, that's, been, that's traditional. Titanium looks like a lot like the stainless, but it's, it's half the weight, but generally about three times the cost. Another massive breakthrough that I made in, in fairly recent years was uh, shifting and coming to going over to blackmail. So you see, this one virtually disappears, the one on my right hand here. This yeah. one is all bright and shiny. If you've seen any films when I'm in the water working or anybody else in the water working with sharks and you see us feeding sharks, you'll notice that that piece of fish in our hand looks a lot like this shiny silvery material because it's fish scales and or light colored flesh. And this one, if your gloves are black and you've got a shiny object in there like this bit of fish, there's less likelihood the shark will confuse your hand as it's going for that bit of bait. So going to blackmail, which is what I, what I call this, it's one of our, one of our uh, uh, more advanced uh, uh, improvements to shark suits, uh, helps in a variety of ways. Makes you less visible, less of a target, uh, and uh, of course they, they basically disappear you know, as you're wearing them underwater. Uh, so then you go, from, you go from there and you shift over to, to, the, to the, uh, uh, all the natural uh, uh, suits that we've been using forever. So here you got some neoprene, right? This is our wetsuits. This is what we would normally use. Obviously, yeah. there's nothing protective about, about neoprene. It just slices and dices, right? Or if you've, got a, if you've got a blade of some kind, you know, you can simply, you know, cut it or slice it right up. Well, my textiles, if we make our neoprene, which we're in the process of doing now, out of my textiles, and by replacing the nylon that's on the skin right there. Let's see what happens now. Not oh. Not <laughs> so you see what happened to that neoprene underneath there? Right? It's all jaggedy and cut up right there. Can you see that? Yeah. And then there's your textile. You also with the blade, you know, example, boom, you're all the way through. There you got some textile. Whoa! <laughs> That's amazing. The things that we do, the things that we do for fun around here, are changing the freaking world, and uh, and uh, I'm I couldn't be more excited about it and the progress that we've made. There are many many different kinds of products that I've made for my, my friends in the special operations and so on, that have already been protecting their lives, limbs, um, survivability. You know, we we like to think of ourselves as being able to extend the zone of survivability while shrinking the zone of lethality. And uh, that's precisely, precisely what, we, uh, what uh, the whole shark adventure has evolved into through a lot of this protective technology. So it goes from, from sharks and the great outdoor world and, uh, and has now been shifting over into some of these other more commercially viable areas that, uh, uh, that would bring greater value to, you know, to, to normal people as opposed to this tiny little mm -hmm. niche of working with sharks. So you're, you're making them um, wetsuits from this, this textile? Is that what you're, you're well, making out of those? Yeah. Yeah, I've designed uh, been about 30 plus textiles now over the past, say, 10 years, maybe 20 years. Some of the original ones were for shark suits that I, that I was building, you know, uh, that direction. And I've actually made shark suits out of some of the textiles that I developed early on. And uh, those did their job. I learned many, many things about that. Not you know, sharks' teeth are as sharp as things can get. Uh, so they are extremely sharp. You just touch sharks' teeth, you know. <clears throat> Whether it's a large white shark style 
or something smaller. <coughs> Excuse me, anything that has serrated teeth like this, whether it's white shark or in this case a bull shark, you know, you've, you've heard about bull sharks and being how notorious and, and fierce they can be. Well, that, that's absolutely true uh, because they've got a very high testosterone level. They're kind of like a, they're sort of like the pit bull of the, of the reef sharks. Yeah. And while a white shark has this massive tooth, obviously he lives on larger animals. He needs more protein to sustain himself and the fat and so on. Uh, but sharks, since the Megalodon days, I'm sure you guys remember hearing about the big, all that, all that stuff. The, uh, you know, the, the Megalodon days, the creature, their prey was even bigger. Well, as all the dinosaurs started going away and things started shrinking down to be more sustainable and survivable on Earth, way before we got here, the sharks started shrinking down as well, and then every di different species started looking for its niche in which to survive. So you had the white sharks with these giant teeth that were injuring large marine mammals, causing them to bleed out. They don't just come in and gobble them up like Hollywood would have you believe. They come in and they'll usually do an ambush strike. They'll, um, they'll uh, hit them, allow the animal to die you know, quietly and, and just bleed out. Then they come in and they feed on it, taking it apart, or they'll find a dead whale or something. Bull sharks, on the other hand, are a whole different deal. Bull sharks tend to be the species that causes the most mayhem. When you hear about wicked, brutal shark bites incidents in any part of the world, because they live virtually everywhere, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the, in, in the mid-range mid there, they're not cold water sharks. Uh, but these guys, with all that additional power, the fact that they're the sole species that has the ability to convert uh, it's uh, its environment into brackish and fresh water to some extent, right? So the Lake Nicaragua shark would have been a you know part of that part of that the bull shark thing from way back at some point when they managed to get into the Lake Nicaragua and they managed to survive there. Uh, also, we have bull sharks way up our rivers, like the Mississippi River and in Australia, mm. all over the place. Um, uh, I don't know what the closest up in your neck of the woods would be, but I, I don't think anywhere in Europe you have bull sharks, do you? Not that I'm aware of either, no, I think it is, tends to be probably south of the Bay of Biscay, heading down towards the Canaries, maybe, heading down yeah. through there, heading yeah. towards Africa, I would guess, but certainly yeah. not that we're aware of that we've got them. You're going to freak Chris out because he hates swimming in the ocean already, and if you mention there's bull sharks in Scotland, he's never going back in the water. <laughs> it's either that or, or, or Nessie, right? <laughs> well, I was going to, it's funny you say that, Jeremiah, because I was thinking to myself, I could go swimming in Loch Ness now with one of your suits on and not be worried about Nessie. I don't think Nessie wants to gobble you up, though. I think she'd probably be stoked just to see you swimming around. If you found her, she'd be happy to see you, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm going to guess that she's pretty lonely for a while. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. Well, these, these bull sharks, though, you know, they, 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 while you've got that big scary shark, you know, the white shark, uh, uh, and makos can have teeth this long as well. Tiger sharks aren't this long. Tiger sharks could be about half that high, but it, as big as this. Uh, but the bull shark doesn't need big teeth because they have these perfectly evolved tools, whether it's white shark or bull shark. Bull shark has the biggest attitude and one of the more notorious reputations, but look at the size of these freaking teeth. They're tiny, tiny in comparison to the size and power of the animal. Why? Attitude. They don't need big teeth. These guys have perfectly evolved tools, and when you add the aggressive behavior that they're, and, and the power that they're capable of, they just get in and they start doing damage. And this is the species that usually takes off arms, limbs, consumes whole bodies or you know whatever they're managing to catch. 
extremely powerful, extremely uh, capable. Uh, but you can also, that being said, uh, swim with 50, 60 of them in different parts of the world at a different time of year, at different times of the year. So they're not all aggressive. They're just capable. It's like a, you know, it's like a chihuahua. If a chihuahua was bigger, there'd be a lot fewer people walking around because they'd, <laughs> they'd probably be eating a lot more, more of us, right, with their little attitude. But, um, uh, they, you know, I think all species are just extraordinary. They've built uh, critical niches for themselves in the ecosystems in which they play a vital part uh, for the health, well-being, and sustainability of the ocean, which is what sustains us as, as, uh, as our own species here on Earth. Yeah. When you're touching on white sharks there, um, Jeremiah, I don't know which part of this is, and again, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you were the first man to have an open water swim with the great white, but certainly the first man to hitch a ride on a great white. Yeah, there were there were some people that have encountered them. Right. <laughs> well, you'll understand why in a minute here when I tell you that story. But uh, you know, for the for the for the most part, there you know, white sharks have swam swum in, and divers have seen them at, at different places, uh, you know, for years. But nobody was even thinking about interacting with them under normal circumstances. Ron and Val, uh, old friends. That's that's part of how we got so close. They shot the real shark sequences for the original Jaws. And before the film came out, I, that was back in the years that we were all close and hanging out. And they told me the story of, uh, of the film. And I'm like, oh, well, that's going to be interesting. When I went to see it, even knowing the whole story, and the 90% of it was the mechanical shark, it still scared the shit out of me when everybody jumped and screamed in the, in, you know, in the, in the theater because it just, it, I mean, it is it's pretty freaking intimidating, you know, yeah, when yeah, that yeah. stuff goes down. And that opening scene where that girl is skinny dipping in the water there, that opening scene, in my view, and mind you, studying shark, all those shark incidents that have been recorded was part of my specialty. I studied all that when I was younger. And, uh, of course, I've been subject to thousands of bites by many different species all over the planet as I've been testing my gear through the years, over the past 40 years. And uh, that was the most accurate visual portrayal I can imagine of somebody getting hung up with a with a shark like that you know without expecting anything and, and I mean it just the way it hit her the way her behavior went down her disbelief that what's going on here her, the movement I mean it was unearthly to me it really rocked me and uh, to this day that still still becomes the most accurate portrayal I've seen of of, uh, of that kind of an unexpected encounter she apparently broke three ribs filming the scene because of the way the stuntmen were pulling her through the water where she's screaming. It was because yeah. her ribs, apparently, so I've read, again, you believe yeah. 90% of what you read on the internet, but apparently there was, it was well documented that she was, she was injured at one point during the scene. Probably. It's not easy to pull a body through water, as you know. It's, a, you know, it's, everything's, it's like you're stuck in freaking concrete. It's, mm. Being in the water is a whole other game. You know, it's uh, both when I'm uh, working with the animals and, and not. And, uh, you know, your life gets complicated down there. And once I started wearing the big beard again, you know, it's very difficult to wear a good a, a mask, you know, when you got a beard. Well, you know, unfortunately, some of the, the more recent uh, National Geographic programs I've done, uh, the people that did them like the, like that big beard. But it made it very, very sketchy for me not to have my mask fly off, you know, when I'm getting beat up in the water because the beard just makes it slide off i figured it out you know i always figure out a way to do them but it was a bit of a, a another bit of a challenge there 
Yeah, the, so the white shark deal. Yeah, that was uh, that was in uh, the mid '80s, I believe, long before any of the things that you see out there now that have become popular with the development of the shark diving industry. And uh, we were we were film. I used to do a lot of Wild Kingdom. Remember that program? I was Wild, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wild Kingdom. Yeah, I did a bunch of the shark shows back in the '80s, uh, '80s probably '90s. I can't remember when all that wound down, but. Uh, we were in uh, Australia working on uh, doing a white shark film for Wild Kingdom, testing some of my new materials for shark suits. After we got the film completed, there were still sharks around. And back then, we used to have to work really hard in order to find these animals. Nowadays, you go to South Africa, you jump on a boat and guns by. It's like putting a quarter in a parking meter. They run you offshore for 20 minutes. You look at a white shark swimming around, you go back in and get on your plane and go wherever you're going next. It's unbelievable. It's like these super predators that were so difficult for us to even locate back in those days are now far easier to find because everybody's, uh, you know, tuned in their their capabilities of, of uh, locating these animals and where they're living and so on, the techniques. And, uh, uh, it, you know, it's a whole different game. But, but back then, it, we were all surprised and delighted that we still had three or four sharks hanging around after we finished the film. We didn't have to necessarily go that quickly. We'd stay another day. We all jump in the water that afternoon to go down and just start taking some pictures. Put two cages down on the bottom. I was there with Rodney Fox, my buddy, who's a, he's a famous Australian guy, uh, largely uh, because he runs trips down there now, but originally because he was bitten, his entire torso was in the mouth of a great white shark that like from his armpit down to his hip bones, there was a giant semicircle that, that nearly killed him. His wetsuit kept him together and he survived, but he survived really one of the, one of the <laughs> most notorious of those kinds of bites uh, during a spearfishing competition when he, was, when he was a young guy in Australia. And uh, I was down there with Rodney on his boat that we used to use uh, when working with white sharks there. And, and uh, the sharks were hanging around. The, the bottom was about 60 feet. Visibility was good, maybe 40, 50 feet, something like that. And the bottom of this area, the Neptune Islands down there out of South Australia, it's low rock with low seaweed, kind of kelpy seaweed over it, not the tall stuff. So we're at about 60 feet. We have two cages down there, maybe 40 feet apart, 30, 40 feet apart. You could see the other one, but you could, it was starting to drop off in its, in its visibility over there. Well, I'm in the cage with, I guess, two or three guys. Everybody's got their cage in one of these cages down there. I'm in the back. They're up there with their cameras at the front door, you know, holding their cameras, waiting for the shark to swim by the front of the cage so they can take a picture. Well, I kept watching this one big white shark, this big one, 17 plus feet, according to everybody that was there. And it kept swimming this big pattern, like a big figure eight, around the other cage, and come back, and it come around ours, just like a big figure eight. And I'm watching and watching, and it just seems so chill and so mellow. Now, mind you, all of these sharks that we were feeding earlier were coming around the cage, almost chasing us uh, because we were, you know, as we were as we were doing our film, because we had a lot of bait in the water at that time. On the bottom down here, we didn't have bait in the water. We just put the cages down there. And I kept watching this big gal come by, swimming, swimming. And eventually, we had a big back door on this cage that I very quietly opened without the guys in the front even realizing that I was 
what I was doing. They were focused on, hey, man, where'd that shark go? You're looking out in the distance hoping to see it, right? I'm sitting there, and here comes the shark again. Now I open the cage door. This is multiple pass, time after time. It would take about three, four minutes per pass, maybe five minutes uh, when it would come back around. I open that door, and I step outside of it. And the shark's only about 15, 20 feet away as he's passing around the side. And this white shark is so big that it would take three sets of my arms to go around its torso, like, I mean, stretched out, like fully stretched out. Its pectoral fins were so long, they, were, they seemed like they were small airplane wings. This is a big, 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 it's like a submarine coming by. And as this animal's coming by, I'm just getting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm first at the edge of the cage there, standing behind it. The next pass, I'm about halfway out to it. The next pass, I'm out a little further. And each, each throughout this time, I'm doing, you know, constant observation and trying to understand what's attracting this fish's, fish's attention and what disturbs him, annoys him, and so on. And I just kept watching its eye, and it just seemed mellow. You know, it seemed chill. And it wasn't planned. It wasn't, there was nothing, you know, in my mind that I wanted to go around and play around like this. But I did have a bit of a bone to pick with the notion that if you're out in open water with white sharks, you're a goner. And that had been proposed by a variety of so-called shark authorities or experts. You know what an expert is, right? X is a has-been and spurt is a drip under pressure. Well, I'm not a big fan of, of that kind of expertise. You know, I'm, I'm more in tune with, with the reality of what's going on, right? Uh, and that can change at any second, as, as everybody knows. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't like the fact that they were suggesting that they were some kind of hero, you know, for stepping out of the cage with a long stick to protect themselves, you know, uh, uh, as though they were doing something extraordinary. It put a bad light on sharks, suggesting that they would gobble you up if you were in the water. And uh, so I, ha I did have a, uh, an interest in understanding more about the range of behavior from even these massive predators that had been ignored 100% up to this point. Nobody was even considering friendly encounters with great white sharks. As that shark got closer and closer, eventually I just put, extended my arm out as it passed by stretched it because I had to leap over that pectoral fin, you know, like this, while my hand was brushing down the side of this animal. It just swam on by and it was like a wall moving past my hand as it rolled on past, right? Well, I watched that time and time again. Then eventually it came by and I just couldn't, it was, it was an automatic response. I just kind of looped my hand around as I, as my hand went down the side, I just looped my hand around the tail as, uh, you know, as it, as it swam by. And it took a bit of time, right? Because the nose is way here, and finally the tail shows up. And I just kind of hooked it on there. I didn't grab it. I didn't do anything ag aggressive or assertive like that. I just kind of looped on, like a remember the I don't know if in Scotland you used to have those little streamers on our bicycle handlebars when we were a little. Kid. That's yeah. probably beyond, uh, much before your your day, but we used to have these little trailer things, right? And that's what I felt like. That I was like a streamer on a on the tail of, a, of, of, this, of this big animal, and I was just kind of blowing in the breeze. And there's a photograph that you can probably find someplace out there of me doing that. The shark in that photograph is swimming away, and it was shot with a wide-angle lens, so it, it uh, changes the perspective a bit. But look at the size of my hand on that tail, the upper lobe of the tail, and you'll realize that my hand is tiny in comparison to the size of that fish. Well, after that first 
little ride there, I, I hung on and I, I just didn't let go for a little while. And uh, he started taking off. The shark kind of glanced, it kind of leaned its head, looked back my direction just without even flinching. It was, there was nothing assertive, no twitch or anything like that. It just kept going. And I stayed on and it just started swimming. And when a white shark swims, it's, it's covering ground because that tail is so powerful that it moves them very quickly. This big shark, before I knew it, I was probably, you know, starting to lose visibility of the cages when I looked back. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to be out here and then get lost and not know how the hell to get back to the cage, because you do not want to swim up through the water column back to a boat in White Shark area. That was completely insane at that point, an insane notion, uh, because that's their, where they hunt. And, uh, you know, I dropped off eventually after that, uh, after that first ride, as I started losing visibility of the cages, and I thought, all right. I better get back there. And I started swimming across the bottom and I glanced back the direction that I know the shark's going to return from based on the experience of watching this figure eight. Well, it didn't take as long for him to come back this time. I noticed it had cut the circle of the figure eight in half and now it was coming straight back much sooner than I had anticipated and covering more ground than I could even fantasize about covering because I couldn't cover three feet in the, in the time that that shark could cover 30, you know, by flipping furiously across the bottom of my fence. I thought, oh, geez, I might have miscalculated this a little bit. And uh, son of a gun, if I don't see this shadow of a cylinder getting more and more distinct, and then you see that little half smile as that shark is swimming straight back at me. I try to kick a little faster. I realize there's no way I'm going to make it back to the cage. So I stopped and I had a, I had a camera in one hand, a small uh, Nikonis camera with a 15 and a strobe in the other hand. I stopped, I turned toward the shark and I got as big as I could, you know, sp spread my arms out. And my intention was when it came in to hit me, assuming that's what it was going to do, that I would try to roll off its, the top of its head to, uh, to avoid the mouth. With sharks, really, it might sound funny, but it's, but it's fact. All you have to do is stay out of the mouth. So if you keep it cool, everything's going to be fine. And you don't, you know, you just don't lose your shit and drown or something else happens to you. But if you just stay out of the mouth, whatever that takes, you're going to be just fine. And, uh, you know, my, so my plan was to roll over the top of them like a, like a kid trying to jump over a Porsche, right? Well, the shark comes barreling in at me, stops about, I don't know, it seemed like it was only about five or six feet away from me. Boom, slows down, turns to its side a bit, looks at me with that eye, kind of goes, like he was saying, oh, sorry, Jeremiah, I didn't realize that was you. Swims on by. That was the first ride. I did that again, you know, five, six times that afternoon. By the end of that afternoon, uh, oh, oh, there's another interesting part about this. Those guys in the cage, they saw that big shark come by again. And when the tail got to him, they saw Jeremiah hanging off the back of the shark because it was swimming away, right? And they're losing their shit like, wait, whoa, no, no, no. What the hell is this, right? This is why there are so few photographs of that because they, they, they're they like, no, no, we're not going to, we're not going to, we don't want to shoot pictures of this stuff. This, this guy's, this guy's already having too much fun. We're not going to make it even better for him, right? And, uh, you know, uh, in the end of the day, all of those guys in the cages out of both cages were out out in open water, swimming around the bottom, sometimes looking into the murk for the shark. Meanwhile, there's a big shark right behind him, and I have photographs of all this, 
kind of noshing his jaws, you know, five feet behind this guy, and he's looking that direction. You know, it's just, just ridiculous how many times these sharks could have done a lot of damage. They chose not to. We had three sharks swimming around us, including that big one, and then there was another huge shark that was off in the distance, if I recall. It was either, yeah, I think we had either two in close and went out, outside or three in close and went outside. And uh, the biggest one never even came in because um, uh, I would like to think that the older fish that survive the longest uh, have developed some skills at survival. Uh, so they're not foolish. Uh, the young sharks, however, there was a very, quite a young one there, maybe about a nine or 10 footer. That one was really persnickety and would come in and kind of be a little bit aggressive and sniffing around and and he was the one I was watching because they're like, they're like, uh, you know, it's like punk, punk kids in bars. You know, you just, you don't want to underestimate their ignorance or stupidity at uh, getting in trouble. And uh, the same applies to sharks. I've often told people that, uh, frankly, that, that uh, sharks are a lot like people. You know, you walk into a strange bar in a funky part of town. When I walk in, I look around, I see who's there, I assess the situation, and I've got a pretty good, you know, awareness of what, of what may go down in that space. Uh, it's just a survival tactic, situation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you look around, you see one guy, and you go, oh, that guy looks all right. That guy, he looks a little sketch. I'm going to keep an eye on him. And that one over there, you should just kill that one first because he's clearly, that got to be a problem. Humans are the same. Most people are in that first category. They're in the well-behaved, you know, socialized side. Not everybody's a jerk or a dickhead and going to be a problem for you. But the ones that are, you don't ever, ever want to be unprepared when you're out there underwater and there's multiple sharks around you and then you haven't been paying attention to the dickhead. <laughs> you know, that's, a, <laughs> yeah, that's another fool's errand that uh, I may have made a few times, but fortunately I, I don't, I, I never suffered any negative consequences as a result. <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, one of the coolest stories I've ever had. That's <laughs> <laughs> been better than Hearing it from hearing it from the man that did it as well is beyond cool. It also oh, helps. Yeah. Uh, you're you're a very good uh, storyteller. <laughs> you're a very good storyteller. I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying not to not to cuss too much here. You see, yeah, a lot, yeah, of these, a lot of these a lot of these younger military folks, you know, every word they, that comes out of their mouth is usually got four letters in it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where had there not been a picture taken and somebody told you that story, you'd be like. No, you didn't. You hedged that. You know, it's one of those things that if there wasn't a picture taken and somebody told you that story, you'd be like, "I don't think you did." But you know, it's, it's, there's 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 photo evidence, and that's uh, incredible. Really, really, really amazing. Well, it's uh, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it is. A, it's it's extraordinary to to have had the opportunity to to be involved in so many of these formative aspects of uh, of certainly the diving industry and the development of the global shark diving industry and the education and conservation aspect of this. You know, to your point earlier, uh, Alistair, about uh, uh, misunderstanding uh, or not having a, a complete picture of the development and, and uh, evolution of shark suits over, this, over these 40 years, the, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting things that used to get in my craw, because when when uh, I was having communication issues with my old my old partners back there, the tailors were involved for about a year, year and a half, max. And uh, 
when we weren't communicating well about that and things were getting confusing about where the shark shoots came from and all that, I used to simply ask people because I was traveling around the world constantly back then. And I was in New Zealand. I was up in, uh, up in Mount Cook, up at a little hotel up there called the Hermitage. Beautiful, extraordinary environmental place. And uh, later that evening, I was at, at a bar up on the top of the hill there, and there were a lot of backpackers and different people roaming around. And, and whenever I would encounter Australians or people from the Pacific anywhere, I would say, hey, without revealing my involvement, I would say, are you familiar with that whole shark thing, some kind of suit that people wear and they don't get hurt when they're bitten by sharks, you know? And, and I would just ask them, you know, what they know about that or what they've heard about it. And uh, I asked an Aussie kid up there in the bar one night. It was pretty raucous already. But I, I asked this fellow if he'd heard anything about it. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, we've, we, we, we know about sharks. Yeah, and Ron and Val Taylor, they, they've, been, they've been claiming that it's their product. But we understand there's a young marine biologist in California that's actually done all that work. I asked him to repeat what he said. And I thought, dear sweet Jesus, the word is finally out. And, and you know, the, 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 this, that old myth is kind of, uh, kind of dissolving. So, of course, the next words out of my mouth were, Bartender, open bar for the rest of the evening, please. And uh, we all, you know, proceeded to get completely and thoroughly pissed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I couldn't have been happier and more proud. Uh, uh, I, I'm not sure I even told them my involvement with the suits at that point. I was just so delighted to know that that I wasn't having to correct some confusion that it was already out there. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's even cooler than that. The, the correct information got out, you know, way before the internet was ever a thing as well. Because nowadays, you know, it takes two seconds to Google. Boom, yeah. you've got all the information there. But back then, it was very much, you know, word of mouth. And once something was out there, it was very difficult for it not to be the case. Because, you know, you repeat anything enough, often enough, it becomes, in inverted commas, the truth. And as I yeah. said, I've, I've grown up, because I remember seeing the footage of, of the, the suits in documentaries, and I remember my dad talking about it because he knew a lot of the Royal Navy divers, and they were obviously talking about it. And mm -hmm. as I said, for, for years and years, I was convinced. And yeah. then, obviously, in the last year and a half or so, when I when I, I found out a bit more, I was like, I can't believe it. It's crazy that all that time. But it's well, great that it happened back then, even pre-internet, that people knew the the truth. That you know, it was it was from yourself. You know, it uh, it's remarkable how that that the, the the notoriety of that whole thing if you want to call it that but it it uh no it is freaking global i mean the information if there was media attached to it it was global by now i think i've done maybe a about a hundred film and media projects through the years number one number two my original company i called i had a different name it's called neptunic and uh in 2010 or 11 uh i had to shoot that company in the face because the that was when I started to grow the business and started doing a lot of this non-marine science stuff, but the uh, the military development and all that, including you know ballistic concealable armor and just crazy anywhere and everywhere you could you could think of it was an aggressive environment. That's where that's the kind of things I was getting involved in. So as the company was growing, that's some you know you've got to bring in more professional so-called professional business people and oh man. I assumed that everybody was like me and they could handle it and figure it out. But uh, uh, within two years, I ran it as a, as a one-man company for 35 years. And within two years, the professional business people had it so chewed up that I had to kill it and then rebrand uh, all my marine science separately. So I do the marine science under shark armor. I do the technical developments 
under Silvergate Tech, which is one of my other companies. And then it's JeremiahSullivan.com. I do all kinds of unique uh, design and you know technical solutions for other people. But uh, it uh, it was a it's been a long it's been more of a lesson, frankly, uh, uh, understanding the business surviving side, uh, you know, of kind of evolving into something of significance like that. Uh, 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 though the science was certainly more interesting to me than having to engage with so many of these business clowns, man. I, that's mm. not my aim, and I'm not, I don't care for people like that, that corporate mentality and so on. They're, they're a bunch of parasites in my view. And, and uh, so we ended up uh, shutting my old company down, sold off the old logo. Some people bought that or trying to sell t-shirts claiming to be involved in sharks and whatnot, some, some of my history, but they're not. Uh, anything and everything to do with shark suits is strictly, completely, 100% rebranded shark armor now. Nice. Nice. It's, it's ironic when you're telling that story that, you know, people like that in business would probably be known as sharks. But in Lentil. fact, they're just assholes and the sharks are the actual, do you know what I mean? The sharks are the good guys in this story. Man, I could, I could tell you stories about these silver-tongued little silver sideburn dipshits with starch shirts and suits coming in and trying to be all freaking uppity with me. And I'm like, get the fuck out of here, man. You know, it just, it, we're not, it's not going to work. You know what I mean? It's just not my, that's not my style. So it, um, you know, it, it, it does take a different kind of person to deal with all that business. And I've at last, you know, after a couple of, uh, of, uh, of attempts, uh, found the right people to handle trustworthy people that can handle that piece of my, my, my work, so it allows to me to, to focus on development and uh, innovation and uh, doing the kind of things that I'm best at. Yeah, I mean, like like everything, uh, you know, with your shark suit itself, um, in terms of businesses, you know, there's a lot of trial and error. Uh, and, you know, it takes it takes time to find the right people for the right positions. And uh, yeah, but thankfully you got to uh, sort it out now, and it's uh, becoming, you know, like you're saying, it's, it's you know. Everybody, everybody knows about the shark, the shark armor, and uh, it's really cool. I'm really fascinated with the the textile for the uh, for the the, the the wetsuit. That's that's amazing to me. I'm sitting thinking about that. My little, my little pea brain sitting thinking about that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I make them. Uh, I make lycra style. I make uh, you know like a denim style. I do them in all kinds of different. Depending on uh, what the government needed from me, what salute, what problem they were trying to solve, I would engineer a yarn. Then I would uh, develop a textile, then I would make a textile, then I would either make single layer textiles or laminates or composites or everything from, from frag to, you know, uh, 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 laceration, abrasion, penetration, all that sort of thing. Things that normally chew up textiles and all that, that those days are over. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. You don't have to go through, you know, five pairs of gloves per cycle if you're a SEAL. Uh, per training cycle, you go through one and you keep it for 10 years or longer. That's the that's the date at this point for the gloves that I've been making for these guys uh, through the years. Interestingly, it was back in about 1980, also when I first realized uh, that there was some connection or an interest from the, the military and special operations. I was down here on Coronado Island, which is where SEAL bases are in San Diego. And uh, because of all my personal friends and connections there, I was down there uh, one day in, in one of the areas, you know, where they keep all their gear. And there was a cork board there. And on that cork board was a little article that had been in a newspaper. It was one of the very first articles in a newspaper about my suits, the shark suits. And I'm going, well, son of a bitch, I wonder why these guys would have an interest in, in the shark suits, you know. And then I started thinking about it. And, of course, it made sense. Uh, but um, I didn't build a shark suit 
that would be useful for them until it got to the titanium. And, uh, and then, of course, the textiles are what are most interesting to all of those other non-marine science things. I mean, I have people coming from Africa, from uh, India, Sri Lanka. Hey, we need some to protect uh, our rangers from the bites from the predator cats, uh, you know, leopards or tigers or whatever it happens to be, and that sort of thing. So we build, you know, people that are working with animals and all kinds of protective gear. Nothing can be used offensively. It's all strictly protective technologies. Here's, here's a question for you, then, Jeremiah. Do, do, do you have any of the textiles um, that would be completely waterproof um, and, and, and keep you warm? Well, just This is a, a completely off um, topic, but so I do quite a lot of uh, climbing mountains in Scotland, and they are often bloody awful and wet and miserable, and you cannot find a pair of waterproof socks or gloves that are actually waterproof. I have never found one yet, so that's something that would be, be quite interesting. Um, you know, there's the, a, specifically on those socks, I can't remember the name of it, but I have come across that it's a, I find it around my military things, and uh, there is a company, what the heck was the name of that? Otter Socks? Otter maybe? There was one that I've seen in recent years that claimed to be the waterproof sock. Because, you know, the guys are running around in all that same mess. Got mm. stunned if, uh, if there wasn't something out there. Now, I will dig into it, and uh, we'll look around, and I'll see what, see what comes up, and I'll pass that information forward to you. Yeah, that'd be cool, because I, I genuinely, in Scotland, um, you know, a lot of the hills have, you know, kind of heather, and it, it holds a, lot, a lot of water. Yeah. So when you're running hills or whatever, um, you just get, and there seems to be, you know, even, even real expensive gloves, and socks, um, they're, they're just not waterproof. Uh, and that's it's really annoying um, because if you're doing, you know, uh, you know, a lot of hills and uh, you're out there for a while, your feet get wet, you're, uh, you're done. <laughs> so it'd be cool well, if there was uh, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, uh, it, that does make a lot of sense. And if it's still an issue, that's something that I'll, that I'll put in the back of my bonnet to give a little thought to. If I can't find anything out there, then by God, I'll make something. How about that? <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. It'd be, cool. It'd be, pop, pop, be popular in Scotland anyway. Uh, so you, you, so you're, you'd be what they call a Highlander? No, no, no. no there, but there's two of you. How could there only be one if there's two of you here? <laughs> Ali's, from the, a, a, Ali's from the islands originally. Ali's, uh, Ali's from the islands. Uh, um, but, yeah, they're... they're um, the true Highlanders are uh, a different breed altogether. They're uh, they're a uh, very unique people, tough, real, real tough people. Um, no, we're, we're we're down in the, in the lowlands, but um, I love spending time up there. If you if you ever get a chance to come to Scotland, um, you know the north of Scotland as you know some of the hills is is absolutely incredible. Um, not quite the weather that you have in San Diego, but it's uh, <laughs> it's different. It's a different a different challenge. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be as, wouldn't be as green if we didn't have the weather. It wouldn't be as green. Yeah. Well, I, look, I like I like all that crazy weather. I mean, that's that's part of the beauty of uh, of being able to travel back when everybody could travel still, and uh, you know, traveling around the planet, being in all these remote parts of the world, which are basically what I specialized in, truly remote areas. Uh, you know, the polar regions, Greenland, and you know, you name it, anywhere and everywhere, all over the planet. Uh, you know, at, 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 and seeing. Whether it's mountains, deserts, whatever, I love it all. 
I can always go back to the ocean, but then I really enjoy being out in these in these other situations, you know, skiing and doing all the rest of that stuff out there as well. Yeah. So I have one I have one Scottish joke, which uh, you've got to stop me if you've heard this before. But <laughs> let me guess, you know, it's the only one I know, so it's probably the the oldest Scottish story there was, right? It was about about the girl, uh, the, the girl and 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 young Ian. Sitting out in the, you'll have to, you have to tell me how to tell this joke correctly. That's that's what we'll use this time. So, so you got this guy, and and his girlfriend says, "Oh, Ian, I've always been curious. What you got underneath that kilt?" And and she she said, "I right, put your hand under there, and you'll find out." She slides her hand there, and she pulls it out quickly, and she says, "I, right, it's gruesome." And she says, "He says, I right, put it there again. It'll grow some more." That's very good. <laughs> I've never heard that. I have never heard that joke. No, oh, my never heard that. Never I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be one similar to that. The one that I had heard, where I thought it was going to go, is how can you tell what clan a Scotsman's from? Ah. If you put your hand up his kilt and it's a quarter pounder, he's a McDonald. <laughs> I've never heard that either, Ali. I have never heard that. That's good. That's yeah. good. There we go. Well, <laughs> Yeah, but I, I it always made me made me laugh. So now you got a new one in your quiver. Absolutely, I'm going to add that to the bank. That's a good one. <laughs> this is this is this is what we always say. You never know where these conversations end up. Who knew we'd be talking Scottish <laughs> jokes? That's it, man. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, yep. This has been uh, absolutely fantastic, Jeremiah. I've had a I've had a great time listening, learning. It's been uh, uh-huh. a, a real pleasure. Um, I think uh, you know we'll, we'll, we could we could probably do this again at some point if you if you'd like to do that that'd be really sure. cool. Um, I'm always down for a good for a good chat with the lads. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah we've, it's, it's awesome. we've just we've just hit ninety minutes. This ninety minutes yeah. is blown by. Yeah. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I apologize my, for running my mouth off so much, but uh, my 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 plan was about uh, my plan was to leave about. 20 minutes ago, so I think there's a, a really nice night, so I, I was going to go watch Sunset, but about 15 minutes into this conversation, I kind of went, ah, fuck that, this, this, yeah. the, sun, the sun will set tomorrow again, this is cool, yeah. uh, this so is I, I forgot about that, um, yeah, it's yeah, probably, it's been, it's it's been beer really, really good. Yeah, it's beer o'clock for you, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll, yeah. show you, I'll show you one more thing here before, uh, absolutely, before we, before we go, I don't know if you'll be able to see this, I'm gonna, I'll try to position this so that you see the can you see the yeah. damage on this? Yeah, yeah. Okay. These these are white sharks chewing on this bit of neoprene right here. This bit of neoprene covered some of the test parts that I that I had made out of my materials. So you see this much damage on this on this bit of neoprene. This is you obviously you'd have been butchered had you been inside there. My textiles, which were inside this, wrapped around something replicating an armor of my leg. And density and hardness and all that, no damage. So that's amazing. No damage. On the, conversely, with the chain mail, which was never designed for white sharks, chain mail was designed for 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 sharks. Usually, uh, back in the day when I first started them, they were the sharks that were responsible for most bites on humans. So those would have been sharks generally about eight or nine feet and smaller, less than fifty feet from shore. That's where most shark bites had occurred. And I'm not using the term attacks. Shark bites are incidental for the most part. Very rarely is some, someone with a shark actually trying to get you. It's normally an accident because of water visibility and so on. Or being in the wrong place, wrong time. Uh, but um, 
Uh, shit, I lost the train of thought I had on that, where I was going with that one, but no, no matter. <laughs> I'm just completely. <laughs> but it's um, okay. I haven't seen yeah, it well, time. Whatever it happened to be. No, it's super cool that that as you said that a white shark was gnawing on that material and inside because of your fabric, no yeah. damage to yeah. the the human the human compound or whatever. There's so, yeah, there's so many details. There are so many. You know, I'm a detailed guy, and there's so many details that you've got to pay attention to when you're assessing these kinds of threat and protective measures and so on. And it comes down not just to the material science of the substrate you're using, but it's the behavioral issues of both the creature and the prey being a, as, a, as a diver. It's about the biomechanics that we're capable, capable of withstanding without being destroyed by being thrown around, dislocated, broken this, broken that, you know, biting through something. Uh, the psychological issues that are there. So if you don't bring in the physical well-being and all these various layers and variables into every equation when trying to solve uh, or, or create protective solutions in lethal environments, you're in a very perilous place because if you don't take those things into account, you're just guessing and uh, you're not gonna, you're not, it's not going to come out well. So it's all of those lessons from the early shark days that I've used to carry forward with all of these different developments whether they be for action sports, the military, law enforcement, industrial safety, you know, um, uh, uh, road sports, motorcycles, whatever it happens to be, you know, they're all they're all benefiting now from literally from this long 40 year process of playing around with sharks and having fun with friends. It's uh, really a remarkable, uh, a remarkable story. And um, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's genuinely fat. You know, what it feels like it feels like when um there was a few topics when I was at school. Um, you know, Egypt was one, and I remember I had a really good history teacher, and I was just fascinated when he was telling something. It was like it completely um, captivated me. And I was, you know, when you were telling some of these short stories, I was just like, it felt like I was, uh, you know, fifteen again, and my history teacher was talking to me about Egypt. It was just completely like, oh, what happens next? <laughs> oh man, that's, that's what I was like. So, this is super cool. The, the the story the the story continues. Yeah. Happy yeah, to we'll, uh, we, we will uh, we will definitely uh, we'll definitely do this again at some point. I feel like there's there's a, a million things we could still get into. Um, Tonight, by the way, is the is the uh, the new the latest National Geographic program I've done called I think it's called Most Wanted Sharks. It's on National Geographic Channel in this country tonight, and uh, then it will also run on the National Geographic Wild Network, which is their oh, sister right. network. Well, yeah. I think for the next couple of weeks, you'll be able to see some of the programs. Ah, that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, we will. That's, um, cool. Um, right, well, I have to go and do some stuff now. Um, Jeremiah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, you're, you're a gentleman and a very, very interesting man, so uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. Well, I'll take the second compliment, but the first one is certainly wouldn't apply to me. You <laughs> guys, <laughs> just before we jump out, Jeremiah, I know you've mentioned a few times as we've gone through, but we like to put this in the notes. If people want to find out more about you, your work, where can they find you on the internet or social media? And we'll add this all into the notes. You want me to send it over to you? I'll send the. I'll oh, send don't the... You just say it, if you see it now, and we can. I'll oh, add it into the, the chat. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Yeah. Shark, uh, shark armor, which is the marine side of what I do, it's the URL for that is shark suits, plural, one word, shark suits, 
S-H-A-R-K-S-U-I-T-S.com. Uh, the technical products that I make for serious, you know, lethal issues, uh, uh, non-diving is Silvergate Tech, T-E-K, S-I-L-V-E-R-G-A-T-E-T-E-K.com. And then my overall general site is jeremiahsullivan.com. Then on uh, Instagram, it's uh, sharkbait, S-H-R-K-B-A and the number eight. There's no A in the shark there. So it's S-H-R-K-B-A and the number eight. Uh, if you look at those things, you'll be able to track me pretty pretty closely and feel free to reach out. Anybody that's got an issue that I might be able to help them with, I'm happy to do it. Awesome. We'll add that into the notes and I'll tag it into the video as well as you're actually seeing it for everyone that's watching on YouTube. But again, Jeremiah Sullivan, thank you very much for giving up you know, 95 minutes of your time. It's absolutely flown by. Again, we'll definitely, if you're available at any point, we'll definitely jump back in and, and to be continued Um is definitely the way forward. But again, Jeremiah, thank you very much for your time. Cheers, mate. I appreciate very much your, your interest. Thanks so much, guys. No thank you. Cheers. 31, done and dusted. The Silly Goose Gang Podcast.